0: I can understand mixing, you know, like Frosties and Cocoa Pops or something like that, but Weetabix they need special attention.
1: I think it's Wheatabix is kind of like the nutritious one, whereas the Cornflakes is he seeing those is a bit of a treat on top.
0: Oh, I hope not, that's sad. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome to All The Way through the podcast journey and through the Lou through back catalogue to work out if we love them as much as we thought we did. As always and forever, I am Matthew Dunmiles and I am joined on the streets of Lincoln by my long-time collaborator, Alex Watson. Hello, Alex.
0: Hello, glamorous assistant. Or are you the glamorous assistant? Because we're changing things.
1: Look, we can switch roles, we can test boundaries, and we can work out who really is the assistant in this whole operation. Because there's a lot to unpack in this episode of When Louis Met.
0: Unfortunately because there's only two of us there's not enough to have a menage a trois on the podcast but that is how this episode opens and this time on When Louis Met Louis is meeting British household name Paul Daniels, magician and his glamorous assistant and wife Debbie McGee
1: This is the first post Weird Weekends episode of When Louis Met Last time we did Savile and that was still kind of in the midst of All Things Weird This one was released on the 20th of February two thousand. I tried to find some good historical context to put this in place. And the best I could find was that earlier this month, Danny Foster, Mining Class Kim Marsh, Suzanne Shaw and Noel Sullivan are chosen as the winners of Pop Stars.
0: Yes. I feel like there are quite a lot of moments in this episode that have the same effect on me as that. You get whipped back in time against your will.
1: The rush of Naughty's nostalgia throughout this episode is intensely strong. There's very little explanation of who Paul Daniels really is at the start of this episode because, like you said, Alex, he was such a household name. But maybe for some of our younger listeners out there, they may not remember the power of this tiny, tiny magician. But just from his Wikipedia entry, Paul Daniels gained international fame through his television series, which he did called The Paul Daniels Magic Show, which ran on the BBC from 1979 to 1994. That's a long old time. He was awarded a Magician of the Year Award at the Academy of Magical Arts in 1982. and was the first magician from outside the United States to win that. And he also won the Golden Rose of Montreux in 1985. He was a member of the Magic Circle, all these things. And he was known as the Godfather of Magic. So he was a big deal. But the idea here is that Louis is catching up with Paul and Debbie as they step into a new phase of their lives.
0: Like you said, they don't talk about who Paul Daniels is, but the intro credits show black and white clips of his career and him and Debbie both appearing on TV. So you can kind of see how long they've been performing for. He goes from wearing a terrible wig to not wearing a terrible wig which is addressed later in the episode and then we open the episode properly with louis driving classic louis and he says in the voiceover that he's in a little village in oxfordshire and he's going to the home of britain's most famous magician and his wife and former assistant debbie mcgee and as you said, Matt, Louis says they're now in their 60s and 40s, respectively, so Debbie was quite a lot younger than Paul.
1: That's a nice bit of script writing, I thought, which addresses the fact that there is an age gap in this couple, without saying it explicitly.
0: It's a funny one, because I don't feel like from watching it that it seems that obvious that there is that much of an age gap.
1: No, but maybe that becomes less noticeable when you get older. Maybe when Debbie was in her 20s and Paul was in his 40s, that's a slightly different dynamic.
0: Yeah. Yeah so louie's walking up to their home it's one of these sort of big houses with its own big driveway there are several cars on the drive one of them's under a special little gazebo which i assume means that it's fancy because it needs to be sheltered from the rain and then debbie comes to the door in some wild patterned trousers she doesn't say hello she just opens the door and says
2: em um, i don't want you to film at this oh. door i want you to come to the other door because this is the bit we haven't finished and we oh. don't want anything there
0: And then just shuts the door.
1: (laughs) This really symbolizes how different the dynamic of When Louis Met is to weird weekends where people will just kind of go, yeah, that's my house. Here's my sex dungeon. Don't worry about it. Whereas Debbie's like, no, please come to this particular entrance because I want to show off my lovely home. Which she's entitled to do, I suppose, if she's very house proud. So they go take two, Louis enters via a second door, it looks like a conservatory.
0: Yeah, it doesn't really look like an actual door that you would use to get into your house.
1: And he doesn't get the warmest welcome. He kind of opens the door, shouts, hello there. Debbie doesn't say anything. And then Paul just says,
0: come in, Louis. Louis asks if he should take his shoes off. And Debbie very much says, um, yes, please. They've both got their shoes off. So obviously Louis should take his off. The room that they go into is quite big. There's a big glass table with wrought iron chairs, which I feel like looks more like patio furniture, personally, but hey.
1: So even from the outside, when they first turned up, I I thought it was like a static caravan home. Like Jenny and Lee in Gogglebox sort of vibe. So maybe it is just a really elaborate static caravan.
0: Just lots of static caravans sewn together. So Paul is sitting at the table and Louis tries to shake hands with him, even though he's on the phone, which I think there is some blame there. It's a bit of an awkward start.
1: It's icy. It's icy. Palmy thinks that they must have known that the filming was going to be at that time on that day so I don't know whether Paul is on the phone to make him look like he's important
0: Because he's then suddenly off the phone very quickly. Another cut. There are quite a lot of jumpy cuts here which I think is the difference between this and Weird Weekends where you know they never really stop the camera rolling but here maybe because they're dealing with celebrities who have a bit of ego it's like no you have to stop filming now. So there's quite a lot of jumping about but yeah suddenly Paul's off the phone they head into another room.
1: Louis's doing the classic tour of the house to- to try and win people's trust
0: and debbie kind of corners louis as they're walking into this other room and goes look i've not got my big heels on today look how little i am and she kind of presses herself up against him and she is about half the height of him but
1: a vibe is set instantly that continues throughout the whole documentary there So the first room they go into is kind of the lounge, which is really garishly decorated, as you would expect a magician's home to be. And Louis is instantly impressed by a fairly average-sized television, which has been, as he says, recessed into the wall.
0: He says it's amazing. (laughs) This kind of technology dates so fast now, but if you look at it now, you're just like... That looks rubbish. <laughs>
1: my first thought watching that was like, that's now a flat screen TV and they've just got a big hole in the wall.
0: Yep. And Paul says that he had the TV fitted when Debbie was out. And then Debbie says, I had to get my whip out that night.
1: Again, a tone is being set. Louis is then taken back by quite a garish lamp that they've got. Louis says, what is that? And Paul just says, It's a
0: standard lamp, son. It looks like a weird demon made out of wood that's clutching a light.
1: <laughs> it's a standard magician's lamp, son. So they move on from that room into another room where there's a big bookshelf full of books. There is a book by someone called Robert Udine. And then Paul starts to give this like history of the guy he says is the father of modern magic. So he clearly knows his stuff. He knows his craft. But we instantly become distracted because there is a drawing of Paul in the book...
0: In the front page, he's got a book plate. Did you have book plates when you were a kid?
1: No, I've wrote What the Fuck because I've never heard of a book plate before.
0: You get them made and then you stick it in the front page of your book so that, you know, if you lend it to someone, they know that it's yours. But Paul's have a terrifying portrait of his face.
1: I'd expect it if it was like the property of Coventry City Library, but not when it's a picture of Paul Daniel's face in there. That's odd. It's really bizarre.
0: Continuing the tour, we just see Louis standing at the bottom of some stairs, looking like a little kid.
1: What about up here, Paul and Debbie?
0: And then Debbie says all the bedrooms are being done, so she doesn't want Louis to go up there. He's not really going to let this lie, so this becomes a theme. (laughs) Can he see their room? Both Debbie and Paul are immediately like, nope, absolutely not. Paul gets really annoyed, I think, and he says, will you listen to us when we're talking to you?
1: Debbie refers to him as a cheeky little monkey for trying to see it.
0: and She does a little bit of performance here. She sort of lets Louis walk past and then she turns around and looks down the barrel of the camera and says something like, oh, he was trying to trick us there, wasn't he?
1: You get that thing where people say, oh, and you totally forget the cameras are there. At no point do I think Paul and Debbie forget the cameras are there. Not once. So, Louis says he's there for business. Paul has now retired from the world of magic, but Debbie is about to fulfill her long cherished dream to set up her own ballet company. And we find out it's going to be called Ballet Imaginaire.
0: You have to say it like that Ballet Imaginaire.
1: As Louis states, this has been funded entirely by Paul. He very much uh, wants to get that in straight away.
0: We see the poster for Ballet Imaginaire. And then Louis asks how much money Paul has put in. And I was sort of surprised that he quite candidly replies, Oh, I think it's going to be about 300 grand in total.
1: And I wrote, Holy shit, balls, that feels like a lot of money.
0: Yeah.
1: That <laughs> feels like an insane amount of money.
0: He's quite open about money stuff, which is surprising.
1: Totally. He never seems guarded or secretive about how much he is spending on this project. And I think that's quite nice, quite refreshing. Paul seems to be kind of set on the idea that this won't make a profit on its first run, but he really wants it to happen. Louis asks, why are they doing it if it's not for financial reasons? And Paul says we're doing it because Debbie wants to do it and I think she's very good at it. They seem to be having this conversation about Debbie without her being involved. But then we do get into why Debbie so much wants to do it. She was a former ballet dancer herself. She was part of the Iranian National Ballet. She apparently danced for the Shah of Iran and his wife and was there until the Islamic Revolution in Iran, which disbanded the ballet company in that country forever. Which is amazing. Do the documentary on Debbie's time in Iran please this is so interesting but yeah, they disbanded it in 1979 and still in Iran, the idea of singing and dancing are not illegal, but people can be prosecuted if authorities deem their act as indecent or immoral. And there's also a really interesting Vice article from 2015 by a writer called Baila Devaney, which is about the illegal underground ballerinas of Iran. So it says that there are renegade ballet teachers and students staging classes in secret around the country. That's cool. This is far more interesting than anything <laughs> that happens in this whole documentary.
0: I wonder if Debbie secretly teaching people how to do ballet in Iran now.
1: That's a Netflix series, get it commissioned. So the beauty of all the way through, we hope, is we can occasionally take a left turn while Louis goes right. Debbie's time in the Iranian national ballet was too good not to explore further. So I spoke to Nima Kian, who is the founder of La Ballet Persons, a ballet company based in Sweden, attempting to recreate and keep alive the ballet traditions of Iran.
2: My name is Nima Kian and I'm artistic director and founder of the company of Le Ballet Persan. Le Ballet Persan is a recreation of the former Iranian national ballet company, which was dissolved on the aftermath of the Islamic revolution in Iran back in 1979. How
1: big or successful was the company at this time when Debbie McGee was there?
2: Well, the Iranian national stage, Ruta Kyol Opera, developed in its heydays to become the most prestigious center for opera and ballet in the entire Middle East, hosting the most prominent artists in the world. The efforts of some people like Nila Kramkouk and later Dame Ninette Valois, and also other Iranian dance artists elevated the performing arts in Iran to a new art form in a Muslim country such as Iran. Iran produced prominent ballet artists who came to stand on the foremost dance stages of the world and became an arena in the Middle East for presenting the most celebrated companies and dance artists. I'm talking about Margot Fonteyn, Rodolphe Noriev, Maurice Beja, and many other megastars of the world of dance and ballet.
1: Obviously, this is a big question, but can you give our listeners an understanding of how the revolution affected the arts in general in Iran?
2: Yes, the following cultural revolution that came shortly after the change of power in Iran affected the Iranian society and culture in every possible way. Perhaps Iran was not the most democratic country in the world before the revolution, Political freedom was, because of some reasons, strongly limited, but people enjoyed all other kinds of freedom. Iranian culture and arts developed extremely fast, thanks to the efforts of all those enthusiasts being involved within the Iranian culture, and also the Empress Farah, who was an art lover and really a queen of arts. After the Cultural Revolution, the new leaders of the country tried to make a new national and more religiously oriented identity for Iranians. Almost everything that had to do with the former regime and all the progress and developments achieved by the Pahlavis was suddenly very negative and had to be abandoned. The art form of dance, and particularly institutional ballet, was just an example, but not the only cultural phenomena that was to be forgotten. The last ballet production that saw the stage of the Rudek Hall Opera, and that also terminated a great era of artistic productivity for Iranian classical and contemporary ballet, was Sleeping Beauty which was staged on October 1978. The beauty of Iranian culture and performing arts, the Iranian National Ballet, fell into a deep and anxious sleep in Tehran to wake up 23 years later in exile. How
1: dangerous was it for foreign nationals in the arts during this revolution?
2: Well, quite dangerous. The last ballet production that was staged at the Rudaki Hall, as I mentioned, was in October 1978. The Islamic Revolution had by this time already started. The company could not continue with its activities because of the politically unstable situation in the country. At this time, the majority of the company members, I mean, dancers, choreographers, ballet masters, etc., were non-Iranians. They were all dismissed or wanted themselves to leave the country as soon as possible because the political atmosphere of the country became more and more religiously oriented. Within a few months, leaving the country would become very difficult because they closed down the airport in order to prevent former members of the imperial government to leave the country. This, of course, caused a lot of fear among foreign members of the company. But fortunately, as long as I know, all these people could finally leave the country without any major problem.
1: What impact has this had on the Iranian arts and culture scene as a whole?
2: Well, Iranian National Ballet Company was dissolved on the aftermath of the revolution in the winter of 1979. Just a few months after the victorious revolution, all members and staff of the company were collected in a meeting in which they were informed that this chapter of institutional dance in Iran is closed. It was an art form that no longer was in line with the ideals and goals of an oncoming theocracy. The impact of closing down the company meant nothing else than the loss of cultural and artistic heritage for which a great amount of funds, efforts and competence were invested. I mean, the dissolving the Iranian national ballet was an example, only an example for how the entire society and Iranian culture was affected by the Islamic revolution.
1: How did you come to start Le Ballet-Posant in Stockholm and how much does that carry the spirit of the Iranian National Ballet with it?
2: Since my days as a ballet student in Sweden and France, I dreamed having my own dance company in which I could present choreographies that were inspired by the Iranian culture and my heritage. As time passed and I got to learn more and more about the amazing history of Bali in Iran, getting to know that Iran was a pioneering nation among all other Middle Eastern countries to establish a governmental ballet institution back in the 1950s, I became determined to recreate that company in exile, which I probably did after five years of incredibly hard work. My original plan was to establish the company in France. Then because of work-related injury, I had to move back to Sweden and started here to work with this project during my rehabilitation. Founding Circle was started here in Stockholm, our work continued here, and then we also received financial support from various Swedish cultural and artistic institutions, which gave a good ground and base for the company to establish. That was how Le Ballet Person was established here in Sweden.
1: Does the company face any danger today in terms of political backlash or anything like that?
2: Dancing is a forbidden act in Iran, it's a fact. It's considered as a sin and as a corrupted form of art. In spite of the existing prohibition by the state, dancing exists in Iran in many different shapes and forms. Because of the fact that Le ballet Person is staging its performances in exile and within the Iranian diaspora, the company is not facing any direct danger. But there is no doubt that there are forces who do not like what we do. Not at least because Le ballet Person is the recreation, the revival of a lost and forgotten cultural heritage of Iran. A heritage, that, according to some people, should remain forgotten and abandoned.
1: Do you foresee a time when maybe you could put on a ballet show in Iran in your lifetime,
2: a kind of homecoming show? Is that something you would
1: hope to do one day?
2: Of course. Otherwise, I wouldn't continue to do what I'm doing. You're safeguarding a forgotten heritage. We have given a new life to it for the people of Iran and everything in this world is changing and not at least the political situation in iran and i see a beautiful day where le ballet person will stage performances in tehran
0: So Debbie does get to speak for herself eventually and she tells Louis that actually the reason she ended up meeting and working with Paul is because when she left Iran after the revolution broke out she just needed a job and there were no ballet jobs so she auditioned to be a dancer originally she said on Paul's show and then ended up being his assistant and his wife.
1: I instantly feel sad that Debbie has had to park her dream for all this time.
0: That is sad isn't it? I mean it seems like she's had a good time. Yeah
1: as a box jumper as she eventually calls it later on in the episode.
0: Studying ballet and doing ballet is really hard and she'd done that for so long and then suddenly it's like oh can you just squeeze yourself into this cabinet for half an hour
1: but there's a switching dynamic and louis wants to play on that switching dynamic between the two so he says this must be weird for you paul to get used to being in effect
0: the assistant now and now debbie's the magician and paul says "Right, wonderful i have no problems with it at all Louis continues sort of rooting about in their kitchen. Debbie says, I don't normally let people film my messy areas, but I'll allow it this time. Um, he's kind of looking through her paperwork and she's got all the planning and stuff for the ballet. And then he looks around in a bag that she's got and she's basically like, oh, Louis, my pants are in there. So he kind of has a, has a look and then she says, oh, you can look if you want to. I'm sure you've seen it all before. Louis threw a bad boy reputation precedes him. Why does she have her pants in the kitchen? I think maybe she had like a hold all with her clothes in. I'm not sure. I
1: I didn't understand why she had these pants in a drawer in the kitchen. (laughs) Louis then gives a very childish, sorry, Paul.
0: (laughs) Sorry for looking at your wife's pants. Louis asks if there's going to be magic in the ballet, because obviously Paul is famous for doing magic tricks. And they talk about how there are going to be special effects or what Paul calls magical happenings in the ballet, not magic tricks.
1: Definitely not magic tricks, just magical happenings.
0: I like how both Louis and Paul keep saying magical happenings and Debbie's eventually like, okay, I guess we're calling them that.
1: So my instant impression was these were going to be really, really bad. But then Paul did say he did special effects for Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Phantom, as he refers to it, The Phantom of the Opera.
0: They're on first name terms. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Mr. Opera to me and you, but The Phantom to Paul. So it might not be shit was my initial thoughts. Yeah, I don't think so. But Louis is very dismissive. As Debbie is talking, he's just kind of rambling to himself and he goes, I've not seen Phantom. I've seen cats.
0: (laughs) Properly made me laugh. It's just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then suddenly it's just like, it's the end of the first day and Louis and Debbie are feeding the ducks outside. So I think their house is really close to the Thames. So they're feeding the ducks in the Thames. And then Paul's there, but he's standing ages away and not getting involved. And the voiceover, Louis says he feels like he's getting on okay with Debbie. Paul might need more work.
1: Cuts to day two, and it's breakfast time. They've set the table for breakfast. All currently feels very four in a bed. Poor Debbie and Louis have breakfast together. It's a scene of domestic bliss. Louis says, can I give you a hand, Debbie? He's trying to build trust through acts of service as usual. She says, no, 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 go sit down. It's fine. There is a selection of cereals on offer. Louis chooses two. He's a fellow cereal mixer, much like myself.
0: Wheatabix and cornflakes in the same bowl. I've written quite psychotic. (laughs) <laughs> those two need different amounts of milk like the mix is going to get soggy
1: listen the cereal mixers are a minority out there but we are strong and we are growing
0: I thought this scene was quite funny because Debbie's always done up and she's wearing like a lilac corset and pedal pushers, And then she makes a big show of wheeling all the boxes of cereal over on a trolley. But I thought the table, it's like it was all really nicely set and I assumed they would be having a proper breakfast and then they're all just tucking into possibly <laughs> stale cornflakes.
1: Not one cereal though, Alex. Two cereals.
0: He could have had about five. There were a lot of options.
1: I don't think Debbie would have said no either. I think she would have let him pile up his plate as much as he wanted. Cool mum. The ballet premiere is looming. So Paul and Debbie are going up to Lincoln for a few days for the final rehearsals. But Louis and Paul are going to go ahead first. And we've got a big red van. Looks like Postman Pat's van on steroids. And this is the buddy movie road trip we want. This is John Candy and Steve Martin. They're going to bond. There's going to be some great times. I'm really looking forward to this bit
0: the first stop is to buy a copy of the sunday telegraph because they've done a feature about debbie so she's on the cover of the magazine it looks very nice
1: good exposure for debbie well done i absolutely love how prominent the newspapers are in this series already i think like at least about 30 minutes of the savile one is dedicated to him either setting things up for the newspapers or reading the newspapers and this one is exactly the same it's brilliant
0: it's all about the press louis reads the article out to paul as paul drives paul's concerned that louis might get sick, but he assures him that he'll be okay the feature very complimentary but it does mention that Debbie's been accused of being a gold digger in the past and there's also a weird mention of someone making fake nude images or like explicit <laughs> images of her online and then Paul talks about this for quite a long time
1: right there's so much to unpack here firstly yeah the accusations of being a gold digger this is pre the Mrs. Merton episode Mrs. Merton show was a comedy show in the UK for a number of years where she has Debbie on her chat show and she says
2: but what a
1: i attracted to you to the millionaire Paul Daniels. <laughs> Which was a famous line that then kind of haunted the two of them forever. <laughs> and then Louis says... In considering the fact that she's been the subject of sexually depraved photographs... And Paul seems like instantly shocked, but then remembers <laughs> in like a second.
0: What? Computer oh generated. yeah. Somebody on the internet does...
1: Mocked up some pictures apparently. Welcome to the new century, Paul. This is going to happen a lot in the future. Paul says he gets a lot of email about it. I said, please, if you know the site, if you know where
0: they're at, tell me. You know, um, because apparently they're really bad. <laughs> to me, that just sounded like he really wanted to look at them. <laughs> he's like spending all day googling trying to find them
1: (laughs) i found it quite sweet that he didn't really know how to find them
0: is it a good look though to have on your search history that you're looking for (laughs) fake nudes of your own wife (laughs) maybe he was smart enough to know he shouldn't search that
1: Anyway, on this bonding trip that Louis and Paul are having, they go to his brother's house, Big Trevor Daniels. If you've seen the film, The Prestige, he's like the Michael Caine. He makes all the props for Paul's magical happenings. We see him pick up a big box that's going to be in one of the shows.
0: This is for the belly.
1: Oh, okay, okay. Please point it out to me when it comes up. Paul writes a check for Big Trev.
0: Makes some really bad dad jokes about prescriptions and it's just not worth it.
1: I didn't even write them down, they were so bad. This scene is all very weird, and I didn't know whether this is just to show how much Paul is bankrolling the whole thing. He's there, like, writing out cheques and having boxes built and picking up red vans.
0: It's quite nice that he does it with his brother still.
1: Super nice.
0: But yeah, I don't know, wouldn't you feel awkward writing a cheque for your brother?
1: It's also on camera. It's so strange. That's enough road trip bonding for Louis and Paul.
0: I looked it up, it's only like a two and a half hour drive, so even with two stops, it's not really that much of a road trip. <laughs>
1: Then we're straight into the heart of Theatreland. We're at the New Theatre Royal in Lincoln.
0: Is Lincoln a big theatre place? I don't know if I've heard that before.
1: Alex, let me tell you, this theatre has got some history, okay? So it was built in 1893. Sir Patrick Stewart's debut as a professional actor. (laughs) No way. As Morgan in Treasure Island was at the Theatre Royal.
0: That's cool.
1: During September 2002, so not long after this documentary, author and former politician Geoffrey Archer was serving out part of his jail sentence working backstage at the (laughs) theatre.
0: what didn't know that was an option
1: and in 2009 reality tv personality jade goody played the wicked witch in snow white and the seven dwarfs lots of history there but yeah how much bonding has been done between louis and paul on that road trip doesn't feel like a lot
0: as soon as louis gets to lincoln he just wants debbie again doesn't he his comforting serial (laughs) mum. We see her (laughs) rehearsing in the theatre. Apparently there are 12 dancers in the company and the set looks a bit nutcrackery. It's explained later that they're doing bits of different famous ballets. Debbie's the artistic director and the choreographer and she's very animatedly talking to the dancers, explaining how she wants things to be done.
1: She does a pirouette and says the word pizzazz, which is pretty impressive
0: gotta have pizzazz she's also wearing a snakeskin skin blazer which is horrifying and louis says she's clearly in her element doing this really enjoying it paul's just kind of skulking about <laughs>
1: so louis and paul while debbie's pirouetting and saying the word pizzazz they have a little chat about what paul's kind of real function is here Why is he here? And it's here to keep a general eye on stuff because he's got an eye for detail, he says. And then the camera instantly cuts from their conversation to Paul having a lie down on the stage floor like a bored child.
0: Just staring up at the ceiling.
1: (laughs) At this point, I thought this is really very extra as Ricky Gervais. Like if they'd wrote that scene, you would have thought it was too comically perfect. Day three. Louis and Paul obviously got bored of rehearsals so they're going to Doncaster to see some famous props in
0: a warehouse Again, about an hour's drive so it's not an epic journey, I did check Louis asks, can we do some tricks when we get there and all the props are there and Paul says, you've forgotten Debbie because without Debbie he can't do the tricks and Louis starts to sing I'll be your Debbie tonight
1: I don't know what tune he does it to. He seems really happy when he does it, and I love it.
0: It made me wonder if it was a real song. He seemed so confident in it.
1: I'll be a David tonight. So, yeah, we're in the kind of heart of the warehouse, which is full of all Paul's memorabilia from his time on the road and these magic shows. And so there's big promo photos of him and Debbie looking quite glamorous. And then there's a magic box, which Louis is way too much of a long boy for, but he climbs in anyway. And then Paul jokingly locks him in and then pretends to be gone with the crew. And he's kind of laughing outside.
0: And Louis says, it's quite
1: nice in here. Then the camera even does a fade, like loads of time has passed. And then Paul opens the door, Louis jokes, please close it, which is a good joke. A bonding.
0: Louis says it's no wonder that Debbie wants to do her ballet company if she's been locked in that box for hours which Paul finds quite funny but I do feel like there are a couple of points in this conversation where Paul's about to say something and Louis just interrupts him or talks over him which is very unlike him but I do feel like he's getting overexcited and then he's potentially like missing interesting things that Paul was going to tell him
1: they try and get into a bit about Paul not working with the BBC anymore Paul says it was a change of policy He's trying to be diplomatic about it. This is a documentary that's going to be on BBC2. He's not going to go to town on the hierarchy there. Louis kind of pressing a little bit more. Did you feel hard done by? How did they break it to you? Paul says, they didn't break it to me. He found out from a dress designer at a party. That feels quite sad, really especially considering he was there from 79 to 1994. That's a huge amount of time for them not to really say thanks very much for your service sort of thing.
0: Yeah, and Louis keeps continuing and saying, oh, did you feel ill-used when that happened? And Paul said, I didn't feel ill-used, but the way it went down felt extremely rude. He is obviously upset about it, but like you say, he's quite diplomatic. And Louis says in the voiceover, he thinks him and Paul are starting to bond now. This is it. It's going to happen. His new dad.
1: That old Louis magic has worked a charm.
0: Back in Lincoln, things are coming together.
1: Louis is back at the theatre and he's looking in the window at the other shows which are on. And one of them is Phantom of the Opera, appropriate. Another one is called Baron Knights, And one is a pantomime, Peter Pan, starring a certain Martin Daniels, which I've then googled Paul's son. No way. From his first marriage.
0: So Lincoln Theatre is obviously a Daniels family place.
1: There's a monopoly going on. I think they need to get the Competition and Markets Authority onto this.
0: So Louis and Debbie are having a chat and Louis asked Debbie if she's worried that Paul might feel left out of the ballet because she's obviously got a lot on and he doesn't have, doesn't appear to be doing anything. She says that she did worry at first, but actually he doesn't mind and he's contributed a lot to the ballet. In fact, he's away out just now, <laughs> picking up some photographs and he's going to make Like a billboard for the lobby of the theater, like a craft project from primary school or something.
1: (laughs) Loads on. He's got loads on. What I enjoyed about this bit was that Louis does his best stage whisper. I've never seen anyone so bad at whispering as Louis when he's talking to Debbie, and he says, "Do you uh, do, do you worry at all that Paul might feel left out?"
0: there's no one else in the room he's not there
1: (laughs) yeah exactly he's off doing his craft project louis explains that that might feel a bit of a come down from being the nation's favorite magician and debbie says paul has been famous for so long that it's nice to have a break that's definitely how these things work i'm sure but instead of having to have this awkward conversation with louis about how her husband is falling into depression the phone rings it's that press they want to chat to debbie
0: apparently she's doing lots of phone interviews to publicize the ballet show and she does one there in front of louis we don't hear which publication it is but they chat about quite a few things she obviously has her spiel down and she's like yeah yeah this is my childhood dream coming true sounds cliche but it's the truth and there's one part where she addresses being called a bimbo and she basically says she doesn't care because you know she knows that she's not a bimbo and she comes off the phone and louis says well that was quite in depth it was more in depth than i expected and she said yeah he'd done his homework and then he brings up the bimbo thing
1: so louis basically at this point now stealing questions from other journalists
0: He's like, oh, that's a good one.
1: (laughs) Maybe I should ask about that.
0: Debbie basically says she likes wearing nice, glamorous clothes, but she's not a bimbo. And then she sort of goes, and even if I was, who gives a fuck? (laughs) She doesn't say fuck. She would never. More power
1: to you, Debbie. Is Debbie the British Dolly Parton? Is she Lincoln's Dolly Parton?
0: We'll start calling her that now. Her to hear first.
1: So... They cut away from this to five minutes that could have easily been left on the cutting room floor. I cannot get my head around why this is the scene. No. In the, no. So <laughs> They're on Lincoln High Street. Debbie is kind of strutting ahead and Louis can't really keep up with her even though she's far shorter than him.
0: Yeah, his legs are like three times the size of her.
1: And we're at a fancy salon as Debbie is getting a makeover ready for opening night. Louis wants to, quote, wait here. He obviously clearly wants to film the whole thing. And Debbie doesn't want that. She says that's quite intrusive. She's joking. She says she'll dye Louis hair blonde if he stays around. Louis pushing his look, says he wants to stay. Debbie then points out this older woman who could be all annoyed by having her like hair treatment shown on national telly.
0: So then because she gets pointed out, the camera then turns and pits this woman on national TV.
1: <laughs> Louis says, you're all right, though. You don't mind us. He's being the uh, cheeky little monkey that Debbie mentioned earlier. Debbie's like, no, it's not happening. And Louis gives in.
0: So he gets sent away and he goes for a cup of tea. And then there's just this really weird moment where... <laughs> Louis sat there Again this feels like Out of a mockumentary show Rather than a documentary Louis's being filmed Sitting moodily Drinking his cup of tea And then he's like And then I saw Paul Walking down the high street And then he starts waving to Paul <laughs> Who looks directly at him But doesn't react at all
1: And then Louis kind of runs up He's been abandoned my mummy As she gets ahead, head But daddy's there To keep him company And then Paul's phone goes off And he's got this mad Classic Nokia tune on his phone Here's Debbie again this made me realise it's like watching a period piece now. And then Paul's speaking to Debbie over speaker. Bear in mind, Louis has just been shooed away by Debbie because she just wants a fucking five minutes to have her hair done. And Debbie says, Oh, you've got
0: Louis, have you? Yes. Yes. Yes, life
1: is not perfect. Louis. Oh, don't say that because I know you don't mean it, but it's still hurtful. And then Paul kind of blows him a kiss. <laughs> <laughs> And then, in the most bizarre move I've ever seen, Louis just clearly at an absolute loose end in Lincoln High Street and hasn't got a clue what to do. So he goes back to the fucking salon.
0: Paul's gone to buy shoes and clearly does not want Lou to go with him. So yeah, he just. Traips us back to the salon where Debbie's not finished having her hair done yet but for some reason she's just like, fine, yeah, you can come in.
1: Louise's sitting there kind of interviewing Debbie as she's having her hair done looking for any kind of strands. Honestly, I feel like this bit he had no questions in his head and he was just going off whatever he thought. So he's obviously just seen Paul in a red jumper. <laughs> a very horrible red jumper. And then he starts saying that Paul has funny fashion sense.
0: He talks about how Debbie takes great pride in her appearance. This is something that happens a lot where people sort of talk about Debbie's looks and she's quite receptive to it but it doesn't really sit well with me that you know you're interviewing someone and you're like you take great pride in your appearance don't you she talks about how paul is a clean guy like he likes everything to be clean but he's not a fashion man he's not into fashion and then Louis asks about something i think that was in the telegraph interview
1: again stealing from other journalists
0: (laughs) debbie talked about how she talked paul out of wearing the wig that he used to wear for a while and she said i just told him that he looked better without it and eventually he stopped wearing it And then Louis asks, and would he wear it in bed? To which the answer is no, apparently.
1: So everyone has a little laugh about Paul taking off his wig. And then Debbie says, Oh, do you know what I use his wigs for now? I can't remember what Louis suggests
0: cleaning the car.
1: She says, No, I use it to keep the teapots warm. And then she says, That's a Debbie joke. (laughs) And then this is where I wrote in my notes, what an absolutely mad and pointless scene.
0: (laughs) You're right, that whole bit could have just come out. It's so bizarre. I'm not sure what we learned from it.
1: Paul and Debbie wouldn't even tweet that. (laughs) It's so mundane and he just seems totally lost.
0: Yeah, it just kind of makes Louis look slightly unhinged. (laughs) He gets chased
1: away from the salon. He then has to speak to Debbie on the phone and then goes back to the
0: salon like a child. So they go back to the theatre after this. Debbie's hair has been back home to within an inch of its life. like <laughs> She's ready to go. And Louis meets Chris Who's apparently the owner of the theatre I think he says something like Unfortunately When he asks him
1: This guy This guy This fucking guy Chris has donated three weeks of the theatre To Debbie's ballet So we're thinking Good guy Chris That's nice of him to support their endeavour And then he says Just I haven't told me. Debbie what you has got to do for it yet But you know we're, we're, we're negotiating Jesus Christ Megan Debbie laughs it off
0: But you can kind of see in her face She's like mm.
1: What's she meant to do though? Do you know Very strange moment. Grim. Louis asks about the ticket sales and apparently the show is sold out in Lincoln That PR machine in action. All those telegraph interviews playing off. Debbie does a little jig. She's so excited about it being sold out. And then a fake swan appears behind them.
0: Louis gets so distracted by this moving prop swan, which I think must be made of wood. And it's getting kind of pulled along behind as part of the set.
1: Alex, please don't reveal the secrets of the swan.
0: Sorry, it's moving by itself.
1: So everyone watches this swan, which feels like a really long time. And then Louis... Lately Distracted says, who's doing that? How's it actually moving? And Louie wants to go film the guy pulling it along. Debbie
0: is not impressed. She's really angry. She's pissed.
2: Oh no, we so don't look at scary. things like that. We don't film things like that, thank you.
0: She starts off saying, oh it ruins the magic, people don't want to know how tricks are done. And then when Louis says, oh come on, don't be silly, she says, no no, the thing is that there are lots of different ways to do these things and if people want to know how we do them, they have to pay us to find out our method. I mean, she's not just talking about pulling a swan along on a best friend.
1: if that's the magical happenings oh my god
0: in debbie's defense she says she's not completely sold on the swan yet it's not got his feathers on she says
1: Debbie says they can film that if Paul says it's okay, which clearly shows that she's still kind of thinking about his influence on the show, still kind of trying to be respectful to him. That's Paul's magical happenings. Don't, like, just take advantage of that. And then Debbie swans off herself. She's clearly a little bit annoyed. Doesn't seem very happy with Louis. And then Louis has a private powwow with Chris.
0: Buddy's up to Chris. What a stand-up game.
1: (laughs) Some bitchy theatre chat. Chris says he's laying all his cards on the table here. I hope it works for her. I mean, it's a a hell of an undertaking. They spend
0: a lot of money to do this. A very brave move. Mm. Anyone who goes into production and producing now is um, normally very foolish, but at the least, very, very brave.
1: Clearly, Chris thinks this is going to be an absolute disaster.
0: He also hates the swan. (laughs) He really hates it. And Louis starts trying to be like, I quite like the swan. And then Chris is like, say it with a straight face.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Are they questioning Paul's magical happenings? Surely not.
0: So, whether or not it's a bad idea, it's the big day. It's opening night for Ballet Imaginaire. Imaginaire. And the crew are in early, getting everything ready. You see dancers practicing, tutus getting fluffed, sets are getting put together, there's lighting, sound people.
1: Paul pissing about with his swan. <laughs>
0: Louis then says he's thought of an opportunity for him to be part of the show so he goes to paul and he says would
1: it be okay if i pulled the swan tonight Louis wants to be a magical happening
0: and Paul says no absolutely not and then he says ask me why and when Louis asks him why Paul says it's because of Louis's devious and distorted sense of humour.
1: Louis then tries to argue his case he says he'd do it correctly be super professional Paul's not having it and then Louis says like a teenager you're not in charge anyway Debbie is and Paul laughs which is very funny. Louis won't let this one thing go so he goes and asks Debbie he's playing mum and dad off each other at this point. Debbie says that's entirely up to paul aka ask your dad and then they both decide he can't do it on any night not even opening night
0: i like though that even though they were both in the room louis said to paul oh you were kind of on the fence about it weren't you <laughs> <laughs> when paul had already said absolutely not no way that is a proper teenager thing to do
1: so he can't be swamp puller so he goes back to his classic role making the teas Debbie is sat writing good luck cards to the dancers who are about to be in the show that's lovely very classy touch that
0: I was impressed by the fact that she could still write the cards whilst having a conversation when you're trying to talk to someone you're writing do you not just write down what you're saying (laughs) (laughs) because I
1: do well what does she write in those cards in that case because Louis as well as stirring up some tea is stirring up some drama he's desperate for some conflict I think he's just bored out of his mind so he wants to share some dirt on Paul that Debbie reminded him of the mannequin that separates paragraphs in Penthouse or Playboy when they first met. She already knows this. She says, I think it's a compliment. Tick that one. That didn't work. Let's move on to the next thing that could potentially stir up some controversy. So then he gets on to Debbie's figure.
0: So Paul is here. Paul's turned up and asked for a cup of tea as well. And Paul says... And the oddity, oddity it is an oddity in, yeah. in this day and age of cares, is that Debbie's still the same shape. She's fabulous. really good. And then, again, this is one of those times where that people are just talking about her appearance and Louis says, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, I agree. Like, it feels so weird. Like, they're both just looking at her as an object.
1: And then he says, you do have a great figure, Debbie. And presumably you. that's partly... Not having had children. What kind of question is that?
0: How is that okay? How is that ever okay?
1: Debbie bats it off. She talks about people she admires who've had children and who still kept their figure.
0: But then Louis won't let it go.
1: He comes back to the kids question.
0: Yeah, he says, Debbie, did you ever want to have kids? As we all know, you should never ask this to anyone. And she just says, no, never. And then he says, do you know why? Which is such a weird, horrible thing to ask. Really bad. And obviously she gets defensive and says, well, when I was a kid, I liked to read books. I didn't play with dolls. And she never had the urge to have kids, but that's fine. I think now he would never have asked this. But even at the time, it wasn't okay.
1: It's very, very odd. It's only slightly undercut the tension of that by Paul sticking a mic cover up his nose.
0: (laughs) I was actually relieved for Paul just cutting in and saying something dumb.
1: So Louis Len stirs the tea and he gets ready for more stirring at the conversation and he says, is there a fear that Debbie might become too beloved of the public, too successful? He says that Debbie is going into her prime, doesn't say it, but he's implying Paul is not. And then he says, that's quite a lot of pressure on a relationship. Fucking hell, Louis, this is desperate
0: stuff. He's just trying to create problems here.
1: But Debbie's such a diplomat, she says, oh, no, no, I don't have what Paul has, which is that star factor, like someone like Bruce Forsyth or Jimmy Tarbuck. He has that real stage presence. She doesn't need to do that, but she kind of does throw him a bone.
0: And equally, in Paul's defence, he says, of course, I'm not worried that she's going to become too beloved. (laughs)
1: Then in another completely unnecessary moment, we cut to a pre-show party for friends and family where we see Debbie's mum and dad.
0: We saw Debbie's sister as well. looks, quite looks a, lot a lot like her.
1: Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> what did this add? They don't come back to Babs and Pat at any point. But then it's showtime.
0: You see the dancers putting their hats on and stuff. The theatre's full, like they said, it's sold out. And then we see some of the performance. Looks good. Looks professional. The sets look nice.
1: Louis says he's never seen ballet before, which I found surprising, an Oxbridge boy like him. We get two classical bits from Swan Lake and a show called Capella. And then the third is Paul and Debbie's own creation, which is called The Artist's Dream.
0: This is the magical happening. Here we go. So it's about a painter who paints something and then it comes to life in his dream and so you see the painting and then that box thing that trevor built the dancer then comes out of that and dances magical
1: happenings Louis, having never watched a ballet before, suddenly a critic, says he felt the artist dream was the most interesting part and it had a West End feel. And then the show ends, everyone's clapping, Debbie comes out, does a big bow on stage. And then we cut to like behind the curtain. Paul, with some of the worst acting I've ever seen, I don't know whether he expected anyone to take this seriously, comes in and says, whoa, there's people out there from New York saying they've never seen anything like it. They loved you guys.
0: I think maybe he was talking to little kids at that point. I hope it was children. It was to Debbie. (laughs) And then he presents Debbie with a massive bouquet of red roses. He gets down on one knee and says, will you marry me again? Obviously everyone standing around loves this. They're like, oh, so cute.
1: Is that a bit like proposing on someone's birthday? (laughs) Taking the limelight away?
0: And then the sort of budget version of that When they're in the bar Louis walks up with a bottle of champagne Wrapped in paper and says Here you go Debbie This is to say well done
1: Paul cracks a joke He sees Debbie accepting this from Louis And giving him a hug And then he says He's just trying to get into your bedroom Debbie He's been trying for three weeks And the people around kind of woo And then Debbie jokes back But you're always there darling
0: I thought it was funny that I mean I think she's probably had A fair bit of champagne at this point But when she takes the bottle from Louis She says Oh thank you Louis You've been so wonderful and i was just like you've been quite annoyed with him for the whole time
1: you made some teas you eventually stopped talking about that fucking swan you've been wonderful for the whole time
0: mixed messages from debbie
1: After that little jab from Paul, Louis, who I think is a little bit three sheets to the wind at this point, is confused. He says, was that serious or was that a joke? And Debbie says, you still haven't got to grips with his sense of humour, have you? Louis says, oh, there's no such thing as a joke. He doesn't want us in there, does he? And then Debbie kind of gives him the big eyes and says, do you think he's worried that you fancy me and I fancy you?
0: And then Louis says, well, the chemistry can't be
1: denied with the reddest pair of eyes I've seen in a long time. That man wouldn't be able to get into a nightclub looking like that. (laughs)
0: But he carries on because then the next bit is him raising a toast to <laughs> Paul and Debbie and Ballet Imaginaire and everyone cheers.
1: Then they go back to the hotel. Louis just doesn't know when to call it a night. He wants to go for a drink in Paul and Debbie's room. He's clearly pissed. They get ready to go into the room and then Paul says, you know the rules, you never see the bedroom.
0: He closes the door and then Louis standing outside goes, that was a joke, right? And then Paul cracks the door again, puts the do not disturb sign on and goes, nope.
1: And Louis is left in the
0: corridor. <laughs> just giggling to himself he's definitely drunk at this point <laughs> he
1: is steaming
0: so the next morning paul debbie and ballet imaginaire are heading off on tour across the uk i thought they were
1: doing three nights in lincoln
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah the time doesn't really add up here does
1: it <laughs> they've been driven out of town after <laughs> one night
0: yeah you're totally right <laughs> oh well who knows
1: <laughs> Anyway, Louie's waving them off.
0: So he's going to catch up with them later. And when he does finally catch up with them, he's in the lovely, wonderful city of Stirling in Scotland. I think the ballet is playing at the university theatre there. But Unfortunately, Louis's heard from Paul that ticket sales are down. Paul's blaming the petrol crisis. How apt. And the company is losing a lot of money. So Louis goes to meet Paul.
1: Louis at this point must be thinking Christmas has come early for him.
0: They're going to have a row.
1: He's finally getting that conflict he's been seeking all this time. So he goes and grabs the tea in the cafeteria with Paul.
0: So many incredible student outfits in this bit from the early 90s. There must be some people who can spot themselves in this.
1: Yeah, if you were one of the Sterling University students in this scene, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you louis sat there can barely hide his grin. And goes are you worried at all are you worried about this paul's super honest he says he's written off the loss mentally louis again goes full kevin mcleod how much come on give us the figures how much he lost here paul honestly well in excess of a hundred thousand pounds which is pretty astonishing
0: so that's more than a third of the entire amount he thought he would spend already lost
1: And then the bombshell. Paul's going back on the road. The retirement is done.
0: To fund the dying ballet that nobody wants to go and see.
1: It's not about his stardom, it's not about someone else taking the limelight. He's doing it purely for Debbie and the ballet. It's an economic decision.
0: this night in sterling they've only sold half the tickets so paul and louis go to the student union to try and drum up some people just to come and fill seats for free which i thought was pretty decent paul's just walking around saying to people just say paul daniel said we could come and watch the ballet
1: we kind of close this scene of Paul just kind of shipping them in filling seats Louis again with his best stage whisper they haven't paid anything and Paul says oh it doesn't matter they'll see it now and then they'll come back next time but I think all he's trying to do is save face with Debbie so it's not an empty theatre
0: I think it's a pretty decent thing to do it's not a bad approach
1: and it shows he's not afraid to get stuck in when they go into the bar it's him who's approaching people and asking them to come in and see the ballet it's not like he sent some runner or something to do it good old Paul But then.
0: (laughs) This is the best bit of the episode, isn't it?
1: This is the best bit. Suddenly, we're at BBC Studios. It's time for Ready Steady Cook.
0: Celebrity Ready, Steady, Cook. Yes. Another flashback moment.
1: Is it worth giving the premise of Ready, Steady, Cook?
0: Yeah, let's do that. Because if you're Paul Daniels, you've never seen it before.
1: The idea was originally it was members of the public, but then they moved to celebrities later on. Two celebrities provide two celebrity chefs with a bag of ingredients. Usually they have like a budget of like five pounds or ten pounds or something. Spoiler alert, the celebrity does not actually bring their own bag of ingredients. And then the chef has to make a dish using these ingredients and then other stuff they've got lying about in the Ready Steady Cook studio in 20 minutes. And apparently the celebrity is meant to help, but no one told Paul. (laughs) once they've made the dishes somehow the audience will get to try it it's a very feeding of the five thousand sort of biblical thing going on
0: yeah not quite sure i believe that
1: and then the audience votes on which dish they thought was better and there's two teams there's the red tomatoes and the green peppers
0: hosted by ainsley harriet
1: a titan of Northeast tv
0: if you're not from the uk and you've never watched an episode of ready steady cook go and have a watch on youtube or something it's worth it
1: Paul is booked to appear on Ready Steady Cook. I wrote, could this get any more early noughties? He's going to use this TV appearance to plug his return from retirement. He's back on the road. Again, it's all about Debbie. He's not doing this for Paul. It's just all about Debbie and her ballet. Louis asks, are you going to do some magic on the show? Paul's like, no. If they wanted that sort of crossover, they should have planned for it magic should not be a passing thing
0: which i actually kind of agree with
1: alex at this point i wrote i bet he does a trick
0: of course but if they'd wanted him to it would have been polite to say would you mind doing some magic
1: he could have brought the swan
0: so they're in the car and then they get to the studio and louis says in the voiceover that paul seems out of sorts which translates as paul's grumpy as hell the runner or whoever's been sent to fetch them says oh so you're looking forward to doing some cooking and he says nope i can't cook and then Louis asks, so who's Paul up against, the other celebrity? This one hit me like a train. She says, it's Anna Ryder Richardson from Changing Rooms.
1: It can get more early noughties.
0: Amazing. I hadn't heard that name in such a long time. Paul shrugs and says, eh. Louis says, it's A-list, which is quite bitchy.
1: <laughs> no, I think he's serious. Change Rooms was so big at the time.
0: Paul's just like unimpressed couldn't care less and then for the second time paul's asked are you going to do a trick this time by a team member of the crew and paul says no i'm not doing a trick
1: he's a tired grumpy man in his 60s at this point they go through to the studio where it's going to be filmed paul and anna cross paths
0: it's very business like that isn't it Just a shake hand hello i'm paul daniels hello i'm anna Reder richardson
1: cold world of showbiz right there And then Paul meets the director and the floor manager. He's kind of getting taught through the whole thing. And he says, just shoot me like a football.
0: I assume he meant just like propel me to where I need to be.
1: I didn't know whether he meant like keep the camera on me and my round head is like a football.
0: Maybe he meant that. (laughs)
1: Anyway, the floor manager is showing him round. She says, have you seen the programme? Paul, no.
0: Impossible. It is impossible that you have lived in the UK and you've not seen Ready, Steady, Cook.
1: He gets kind of distracted by how the entrance to the set works... There's a pulley system.
0: Part of the set is that the celebrity comes out of a giant vegetable. So for Paul, it was a giant pepper and the doors open. And he was impressed by the fact that both doors open at the same time, even when you only push one of them.
1: The floor manager's there explaining everything to Paul, all the kind of premise, how you do it, what's going on. He couldn't be less asked. He's kind of just pacing around, looking at jars of pesto as she's trying to give him all the rules and everything. He says, oh, sorry, I I just do this. I just pace, but I heard everything it's painful it's really difficult to watch could you imagine being on that set
0: so awkward i felt really bad for the floor manager but then she says are you gonna do us some magic (laughs) and he says not as far as i know she's probably just like kill me now
1: get me through this day's recording for the love of god i wonder what anna ryder richardson was like
0: i bet she was lovely
1: louis says he senses paul isn't enjoying himself so louis feels that he has to help him lift his spirits i don't know why he feels like he has to boost paul's morale that's not his job as the documentary maker
0: but he wants him to like him
1: (laughs) i know so he says he'll do this by asking paul about his autobiography asking about him essentially the book is titled paul daniel's under no illusion nice was released in the year 2000, so it's fairly new. Louis says there's a lot of, and he uses the word sexploits.
0: Louis has transformed into a tabloid journalist for this. <laughs> Paul says that he had a good time.
1: It was the 70s.
0: Confirms that he had more than 300 sexual partners and some of them were groupies. It was the time when girls had discovered the pill. So they were doing what the lads had been doing. So there was lots of sex going. And then I feel like this is such an ill advised thing to say. He then goes,
1: And then suddenly along came herpes and AIDS and all that. <laughs> then Louis says, And Debbie.
0: Paul says, Oh, yeah. And Debbie.
1: Herpes, AIDS, <laughs> and Debbie. And Louis and Paul have a little laugh together and his mission is complete. He's got Paul back on track.
0: A handshake from Ainsley Harriet will surely set you right.
1: This is why I watched this episode. So they're in the corridor, clearly getting ready, and Ainsley has arrived. The big man's on scene. He's in a fabulous blue, kind of satiny shirt. Big Harriet goes straight up to Paul, asks how he is, how the family is. Proper godfather move there from Ainsley. <laughs> and then he says when he's seen Debbie and Paul kind of pops round the back of Ainsley, little tiny Paul. He says, Oh, Louis knows. And so then Louie and Ainsley lock eyes. And it's a meeting of two Titans. Of Naughty's TV.
0: Beautiful. Ainsley says. Are we met before, haven't we, Louis? Oh, probably. Uh, in the corridors. In the corridors somewhere. of power. Oh, oh. yes, absolutely. <laughs> Drifting around. So that's what happens in the BBC studio corridors, apparently.
1: Ainsley Harrett and Louis Theroux.
0: Drifting.
1: And then it's showtime. Paul makes his way out the door with the pulley system, bag of shopping with him.
0: It's kind of broken my heart that the celebrities don't choose their own food items, by the way. (laughs)
1: Look, Paul would have had to bring a bag of shopping from Sterling. It would have been rotten by the time he got there.
0: Just like a really sad leak. (laughs) Put it in the overhead locker on the way down.
1: Melted ice cream all in his bag. We kind of see a little bit of clips of the show. Paul promotes the fact that he's going back on tour. He promotes Debbie's ballet. And then, what do you know? Suddenly, he's pulled out a pack of cards.
0: Curveball, he does a trick.
1: He does a damn trick. (laughs)
0: Louis is watching from the control room, so he's not on set. And then after the filming's over, Paul's get like promotional photos done with Ainsley Harriet and stuff. And then the camera just pans over. You just see Louis scranning the food that's been kicked.
1: It's like the parents have had a dinner party and then he's the teenager. He's just like skulking at the back, eating the food. And Ainsley kind of walks up, he's drinking red wine, he just gives him a little pat on the back. As if to say, you're all right there, Louis. <laughs> Backstage, Paul is all fired up. It's gone well. He says how delicious the food was. And he says that the female chef, she was one good cook.
0: But he said, Well, you didn't help her very much.
1: <laughs> Shout out to Leslie Waters, who is the celebrity chef who is not mentioned by name.
0: suddenly all change we see a land rover driving through loads of flood water and in the voiceover louis says then it rained it rained so much that the thames flooded paul and debbie's house they're not having great luck
1: according to the met office in an article titled the wet autumn of 2000 there was flooding in england and wales it was the most extensive since the snow melt generated floods of 1947 in all 10,000 homes and businesses were flooded at 700 locations
0: Jesus
1: big old flood and the house is proper flood damaged which is really shy.
0: the garden literally looks like a pond it's really bad so Louis like wades through I don't think he's even wearing wellies he just wades through in his trousers and inside everything's lifted up off the floor like they've obviously had water in the house Debbie and Paul are both there and they say there was an inch of water inside the day before it's gone now but everything will be covered by insurance Louis asks if the upstairs is okay and then there's a, the whole back and forth joke like no you still can't go up there then <laughs> Paul says I like you not at all <laughs>
1: that's his famous catchphrase then we cut to Louis driving Paul and Debbie in his car they're going to Essex big daddy Louis in the driving seat now power dynamics switched and Louis says in the narration he thought the ballet's financial issues would strain their relationship Read that as he wanted it to, but he says if it did, they're not showing it. And Paul and Debbie are kind of just prattling around in the back of the car.
0: Yeah, Paul's got his shoes off and he's almost horizontal and he keeps putting his (laughs) foot in Louis' face while he's driving. But then Debbie takes her shoes off too and then they're like kicking the ceiling and singing along to each other. And They really have switched. They're the kids now. Louis's the dad.
1: So they get to Harlow in Essex and Louis and Paul are going shopping. Paul is there signing an autograph and then he gets Louis to sign the autograph too. She wasn't bothered.
0: She was like, who the fuck is this? (laughs) And
1: then they're wandering through this shopping centre in Essex. There's a slushy machine and Paul looks down the camera and asks, how do you drink a slushy?" And then Louis gets really pissed off and he's like, not to the camera, Paul, please. To me, to me. So
0: clearly he's been talking to the camera when he's not meant to be. See, this is quite a cute little bit. But it was soured for me by the joke that Paul made to that woman where she said, I came to see you in Yarmouth a few years ago. And he said, am I the father of your child? And she said, no. And he said, oh, just checking.
1: I don't think it helps Paul that this episode comes directly after Savile. No. But anyway, they pret around in this shopping centre for a while. They get photos together in a photo booth like Teenage Best Friends. It's pretty cute. They go to Vision Express.
0: Louis tries on some new glasses.
1: Which are weirdly the kind of glasses that he eventually does wear. A group of young girls see Paul and they're super excited because he's a famous magician. Kind of does show he does have some star
0: power. They're quite young as well. He's not on the TV anymore at this point and they still know who he is. Absolutely. But they don't know who his wife is because Louis asks. One of them says Mrs. Daniels. Which is a
1: fair guess. And then we're back to the theatre in Harlow and Louis is trying to speak on the DL to Debbie about Paul's mood. He loves a little bitchy side chat in this one. Can't help himself. So he's trying to say, oh, Paul seems so much happier. And then Paul interrupts. He comes up to say that he spoke to the man at the box office and they've never had as many people in for a dance show, which is maybe not true, but I appreciate that he was doing that for Debbie.
0: I thought he was going to say that they'd sold out tickets, but I imagine that they hadn't or he would have fled with that probably. Paul kind of comes and steamrollers this side chat but then he goes away again and Debbie explains that she hasn't had a word with Paul it's just that he's more relaxed now he's more used to Louis when they first started doing the filming they weren't really sure what it was going to be like and she says Paul was concerned they wouldn't be Louis' kind of people
1: It's a super intrusive filming, to be fair I mean, Debbie can't even get her without having three cameras pointed at her It does feel like a lot of time where Louis and the camera crew are guests in your house and I do kind of appreciate you would be a bit ooh, what is this? about it <laughs> god this is a long documentary from this we go to the offices of Keith and Mervyn who are Paul's management team or do we? We don't really go to the offices of Keith and Mervin.
0: I think we see one shot of them.
1: They are big man business to discuss. So Louis has to go stand in a warehouse with some cardboard boxes while the grown-ups talk.
0: Do you see that he pockets a mug? Yeah. <laughs> what is that? He just steals a mug.
1: So after building up Keith and Mervyn very much in the same way as Debbie's mum and dad, we don't actually speak to them, but we just see Paul afterwards and he's all pissed off. And Paul won't tell them about what the meeting was about. They're in the van. Paul says, oh, no, it doesn't matter. It's nothing. You're not interested in my money. Louis jokes, we are. And then the director joins in and also shouts, we are. Louis wants to know why Paul's annoyed. He says that Keith and Big Merv are asking theatres about the shows, but people want the magic show and they don't necessarily want the ballet. Paul says they are not there to make the decisions. Clearly, Big Keith and Merv are saying, can this? It's not working out. But he wants to persist.
0: I do feel for him at this bit because it would be pretty rubbish to go back to Debbie and say, actually, let's not do this anymore. But then Paul sort of says, "Oh, I need to properly think about this. And you were just getting in the way. You were interfering in my business. And that's why I kicked him out. Louis says, oh, I'm sorry that I made you angry. And then Paul says that he doesn't bother getting angry anymore because when he gets properly angry, he flips like he would have tossed Louis aside if he was properly angry.
1: Big Joe Pesci energy there from Paul Daniels. So we cut from this to the end of filming feast.
0: Yeah, I'm glad it didn't end on this. That would have been quite jarring.
1: Alex, I'm glad it ended, I'll be honest.
0: (laughs) It does end, by the way, if anyone's wondering. We're nearly there.
1: Debbie's prepared a end of filming feast. He's back to being four in a bed now. And the menu consists of, here we go, an apple and mushroom soup with hot bread. Sounds rank. (laughs) a chicken in masala and mushroom sauce, mashed potatoes, beans, and carrots, and then a banoffee pie for afterwards.
0: That's the most confusing menu.
1: The thing is, though, I could barely hear Debbie's menu over Louie's exaggerated. Mmm, delicious. oh, over the top.
0: I'm not a good cook, so I can't really say one off, but when we saw it getting served up as well, I was like, that veg is way overdone.
1: Oh, come on now.
0: It didn't look the best.
1: I'd like to see your <laughs> masala and mushroom sauce.
0: I could never have the creativity <laughs> to think of that.
1: We see them toasting. Cut back to the start of the episode, Debbie toasts the menage a trois. It feels like they're laying the cards on the table now. Louis is like, hopefully the documentary will do something for the ballet, implying you only did this to promote your ballet. Paul denies that. And then Debbie says it's because they wanted to meet him. And she says, I saw that one you did on swingers. And I thought, we've got to meet this man.
0: Do you think that Debbie's listened all the way through? I was about
1: to say, Debbie, if you're listening, we've got a podcast for you. Louis then, I think, catches himself looking at Debbie and then says, Can I
0: admire your
1: outfit? It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus wept.
0: And then they all look at Debbie's body again.
1: They sit down around the table and pull crackers.
0: So it must be Christmas.
1: Must be Christmas, otherwise what the fuck's going on? They all wear hats and then they get fairly pissed. A couple of glasses of wine later, I was moved to say a few words.
0: I love it, you can definitely hear in his voice as well. (laughs) He's quite far gone.
1: What I'm amazed by, if I'm at the risk of being over-candid, I've been looking for sort of a tension between you, you know, the idea that Paul's going to resent sort of spending a lot of money on making your dream come true. But I haven't really, uh, I haven't really seen it. Paul says, well, that's because you didn't see it when Debbie was there for me, doing all the same things for me and my magic shows, which is totally true. And then Paul says it upsets some journalists that they get along so well. Then Louis... (laughs) in a slightly drunken morbid state just says a genuinely happy couple is a rare thing
0: he's not married at this point is he i don't know i don't think he is let's hope not and then paul disagrees and he says actually i think most couples are happy but there's a small number of what is the phrase he uses manky miserable people meaning journalists i think who try to make everyone think that everyone's miserable
1: and so then louis has nothing to conclude but they are a generally happy couple he says they are united against the manky miserable people a magic circle of two end credits
0: and then we see paul and debbie waving louis off sending their child off back to university in this little red car
1: and then paul says he's all right you know as he turns away which i thought was quite funny
0: and then they do a little dance
1: they do a little more come wise step back to the static home And it's done. That's it. What a strange, <laughs> strange show. But would you like to know what happens next in the world of Debbie McGee and Paul Daniels? Yes. Unsurprisingly, the following tour was not Paul's final tour. In 2013, Daniels and Debbie McGee toured their first farewell tour, followed by a tour comically titled "Back." despite popular demand tour a year later. And then they finally toured the Intimate Tour in 2015. They were doing pantos and all sorts of things right up until Paul tragically died in 2016. He passed away at his home after being diagnosed with an incurable brain tumour. They didn't know about this until literally weeks before he was diagnosed. And then apparently the 77-year-old chose to spend his final days at his home with his family and McGee. So yeah, that was it. Paul passes away. Paul. In terms of Debbie's life then, as you can imagine, Ballet Imaginaire was a flop. Never toured again after 2001. I think the last review of it I can find is in 2001 and then nothing. And all of the reviews are fairly average, none of them too complimentary. But Debbie does go on to have her dancing dreams realized. She goes on to perform in Strictly Come Dancing in 2017, where she made it to the finals of the competition, but lost out in the final to Holby City's Joe McFadden. Apparently. Boo. Boo. But still got to the final of a massive BBC National Show doing dancing, which was great.
0: I'm happy that she did that after Paul died as well. Absolutely. That'll have been good for her.
1: And she hosts a podcast now called Spill the Tea with Debbie McGee. Does she? Yes, yeah, she does.
0: Ooh, maybe we could go on her podcast and she can come on our podcast.
1: Oh my god, yes. We
0: could take Louie on.
1: Yeah, let's all three <laughs> of us do it.
0: This will be like when Louie signed the autograph with Paul Daniels. She'll be like, Who are these people? <laughs> That <laughs> they have to come on.
1: Alex, is this good Louie or bad Louie?
0: I kind of think this is bad Louie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a fucking stinker, isn't it?
0: It's just not that fun to watch. Recording this podcast has been more enjoyable than actually watching the episode. So if you're thinking of re watching,
1: maybe don't. It's difficult to say because this is kind of the first proper when Louis met we get to see. I don't think Savile really counts because even though lots of it was very mundane, maybe like this is, now watching the Savile one, you're constantly thinking about this big dark secret that he's got underneath. Whereas with Debbie and Paul, Louis is desperate for there to be some big deep divide or secret going on underneath. And there's just not.
0: They do generally seem to be decent people and they get on with each other and there's no drama really. If this was you know a reality TV episode you'd be like that was quite boring.
1: (laughs) It does feel like an episode of reality TV doesn't it? Early days reality TV like Maureen from Driving School sort of vibes more than anything like Love Island.
0: And I think you're right I think there are at least 10 minutes could have been cut easily from this and it would have made it A more manageable episode.
1: It could have just been the Ready Steady Cook segment, to be honest. That was good. That was genius. So thank you Ainsley and Anna Ryder Richardson for saving this documentary.
0: For your service.
1: So we've got four more episodes of When Louis Met to go.
0: Strap in. At the... (laughs)
1: <laughs> at the moment this feels like Louis's gap year he did some really difficult work he went to all these places in america met some interesting people and then they went what do you want to do now and he just went whatever's easiest. like what's the least amount of effort i can put in
0: so we're officially saying that this is bad louis
1: this is bad louis it's not a magical happening it's just a man pulling a swan
0: Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at all Take a moment to admire our amazing original artwork by Tara Dunn. Each episode has its own illustration and they're really fucking good. And thank you so much for your lovely words in reviews, on Reddit, in comments. We read and appreciate every single one. Angels on your bodies.